Well, why is creation such an important issue for our society today? I personally believe that it is one of the most important issues that the church is facing because it is the number one reason why people aren't accepting the gospel message. They don't believe the Bible is true. Matter of fact, uh, Ken Ham has wrote a book called Already Compromised and Already Gone. Already Gone was the first one, Already Compromised was a sequel to that. In Already Gone, they polled people who had left the church to find out why they were leaving. And what they've discovered is that the number one reason is because people don't believe the Bible is to be uh, is an authority anymore. As a matter of fact, since 1969, there have been 1,500 churches that have closed their doors in the UK, just since 1969. Only 6.3% of the population in the UK attend church. 61% of churchgoers leave the church by their 20s. Why? Well, that was the point of already gone. And as I said, it's because they don't believe the Bible is true. Science, evolution has proven it wrong. One of the shocking things they discovered in that book is this. If you sent your kids to Sunday school, they were actually more damaged had they not gone to Sunday school. Across the board, when they asked questions, those who had gone to Sunday school had more liberal answers. For example, when asked, do you believe evolution is the origin of human beings? What percent agree? Over 24% of those that had Sunday school background said, yes, evolution is the origin of human beings. While yet only 18% of non-Sunday school goers accepted that. When asked, is premarital sex okay? We had 59% say it was okay if they had Sunday school background versus 53.3%. Well, how about this? Good people, they don't need to go to church. Do you agree with that? Those that went to Sunday school, over 39% said that was right. While only 28% of non-Sunday school goers. When asked, is church irrelevant? Do you agree? Over 48% of Sunday school goers and 39% of non-Sunday school goers. Those who attended Sunday school were across the board more likely to deny the Sunday school stories and the Bible as accurate and true. They were more likely to see the Bible as being written by man, doubt that the Bible had been written correctly. They were more likely to defend gay marriages and homosexuality, abortions. They were not to believe that the earth was less than 10,000 years old. They did not believe the dinosaurs lived with man. And they were more likely to be anti-church. And it wasn't because they went to churches that were more liberal. They purposely polled people who had left very solid Bible-believing churches. Matter of fact, 9 out of 10 said that they were taught the Bible was true and accurate. A tenth of them only were taught that evolution could be believed. A quarter of them were told that they could believe in evolution. Only a quarter. Eighty percent said the pastor taught that the earth was, you know, six 24-hour day creation. A sixteenth only were taught that Genesis was a myth. So most of these were brought up in good teaching. But something went wrong somewhere. And I think it's because kids have questions. They want to know why is there death, disease, and suffering? If God is so good, why is that stuff there? They want to know, why can't homosexuals get married to one another? Isn't love a good thing? Isn't it happier to get divorced than to be miserable for the rest of your life in a bad marriage? How can the earth look so old if it's so young? 
How come Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? I mean, I know some good, some good Muslims or, or good Jews or, 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 or good Hindus, and, and they're very nice people. God wouldn't send them to hell, would he? You know, why do dinosaurs have nothing to do with the church? You see, no one asks these questions, so they assume that no one has the answers. And if, if they don't have the answers, well, the church must be wrong. You see, statistics show that, you know, they were denying the Bible as an authority, but it doesn't necessarily show for sure why they left the church. It shows what they were thinking. I think the reason that Sunday school people were more likely to be liberal is because when they went to school, the university, they were taught all these things they had never been taught before, and they thought, wow, you know, I never knew this, and I went to Sunday school my whole life, and they never gave me any answers. They must not have any. But those that didn't go to Sunday school kind of hold out a little bit longer because they think, well, maybe if I'd have gone to Sunday school, they'd have told me these answers that I have questions to. But because they weren't given the answers, those that went to Sunday school thought the church didn't have answers. Now, I'm not saying Sunday school is bad. I'm simply saying this. Our curriculum needs to change. We need to make sure that we're giving kids answers to real-life questions. They need to know what truth is and why it is true. We have to ask, why are we teaching what the Bible says, but not why it's important that we believe it? Are they getting the message that facts are irrelevant, but faith is not? Do kids get the message that if you want to learn something meaningful, you're going to do that at school, but if you want something lofty and emotional, you're going to find that at church? I think so. Have we made man the authority of God's word rather than God being the authority of his own word? And by the way, music wasn't the answer. Music is not the answer. I see so many churches were trying to make new programs and new music to attract people in. Statistics show that was not the answer. They could not care less about the music. That was not it. We're striving to give these entertaining messages, to make people feel inspired and to feel in the right spot. That is not the answer, according to statistics. The answer is they want truth and they want to get real. That's what they want. In Already Compromised, the sequel, they polled 200 of the most Christian, uh, conservative Christian universities throughout our country. And they found out that hardly any of them are holding to the Word of God anymore. There's a website called creationcolleges.org, and you can go there and you can see which colleges were uh, polled and which ones failed the test. Okay, about 80-90% of them failed the test. There's a doublespeak, just like what goes on in politics. Do you believe the inspiration of Scripture? 98% of the presidents said yes. 98% of the vice presidents said yes. You think, hey, all right, we're doing great. However, when you get down to what do you mean by that, everybody, yeah, they've been taught inspiration of Scripture is true, so yeah, I believe that. But do they really believe it? When you ask, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning it does not err, only 21% of the presidents said yes. Yet 78% almost of the vice presidents. There's no consistency there. When asked, do you believe in the infallibility of Scripture? Only 17% of the presidents and 95% almost of the vice presidents. So how can they say they believe in the inspiration of Scripture but not the inerrancy or the infallibility? Do you believe the Bible is literally true? The president, 73%. 
92% of vice presidents. Do you believe God created the world in six 24-hour days, which, by the way, is what the Bible says? 78% of the presidents, only 40% of the vice presidents. There is no consistency. But when we really got specific about things like, do you believe in the flood of Noah's day, 100% of the presidents said yes, 90.9% of the vice presidents. But then you go and ask them, okay, do you believe the flood was worldwide, local, or non-literal? Okay, worldwide, 86% of the presidents compared to 42.9% of vice presidents. Local, 5% of the presidents said that. 52% almost of vice presidents said it was just a local flood. See, we've got issues. People don't know what the Bible says. It's not an authority anymore. They pick and choose what they like. And this is the problem. When asked, do you consider yourself a young earth or an old earth Christian? In the religious department, 77.8% said old, 14.8% said young, 7.4% said neither. In the science department, 57% said young. Compared to what you see there is old. Isn't that something that in the religious department, more people thought the earth was old than in the science department? That's because science is really showing the earth is young. But the religious people are just buying what they're hearing in the media. You can go to this website, as I said, creationcolleges.org. You can see the, the statement of faith that was given to these people to agree with. There is nothing on there that any Christian church shouldn't be able to say amen to, and yet most Christian colleges failed to just agree to these basic statements of faith. This is an important issue. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, it says this, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew, but foolishness to the Gentile. Notice this, guys. We're out there. Our goal is to preach the gospel. That's what we want to do. But the same message that we preach can be received in two different ways. It can be a stumbling block to a Jew or foolishness to a Gentile. Same message. Why is it foolishness to the Greek? Because a Greek, a Gentile, has no understanding of Genesis. They don't understand the ABCs of Christianity, their basic Sunday school stories, the story of creation. They don't get these kinds of things. To a Jew, it was just a stumbling block because they couldn't get over the fact that Jesus was the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for a reigning king, not a suffering servant. But to a Gentile, they don't get it at all. There's no stumbling block, it's just foolishness. Let me give you some examples in Scripture here. In Acts chapter 10, we see Peter speaks to Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile, but he thought like a Jew. He reasoned like a Jew. He had a biblical worldview like a Jew. And so, by all practical purposes, he was a Jew. Even the Jews respected him. And this is how he is witnessed to, a believing Gentile. He says this, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead and on the third day caused him to be seen. What was the message? Jesus Christ crucified, died, and resurrected. Did the message work? (laughs) It worked well. It was fantastic. Cornelius believed. We also go to Paul. When he goes to Poseidon in Antioch, he first traces the lineage of Jesus and then says to these Jews, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. He's the Messiah. Did it work? Yes. 
we see to the Jews in Thessalonica. Acts 17, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus that I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Did it work? Worked great. Not a problem. But when we go to the Gentiles, we don't see Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Look at this. When the crowd saw what Paul had done here in Lystra, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul hear this, they tear their clothes, they rush out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you, telling you to turn from these worthless things to a living God who died on the cross for your sins. Doesn't say that, does it? To turn from these worthless things to a living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. You see, where's the gospel now? All of a sudden, the message is creation. We see the same thing in Athens, Acts 17, verse 23. For Paul says, As I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you who he is. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. NASA's out there trying to find water on Mars. That cracks me up. Why? Because they're trying to find where life began. You know what? If they would give me a quarter of their budget, I could give them the answer and we could all go home and be happy. It's right there. God himself is the one who gives all men life and breath and everything else. Frankly, I'd give them the answer for free if they'd listen. You see, it is God who gives life. The message here is creation. You know, I got to live this out. This whole verse, I just lived it out perfectly. When I was speaking in India, I got an opportunity to speak at a Hindu college. And I'm going into this Hindu college and I'm not allowed to share the gospel. I'm thinking, man, if pastors back in America knew what I was about to do, they'd, they'd, they'd hang me up. They'd tar and feather me. Because I'm going to go to a Hindu college and not share the gospel. Well, long story short, I basically get in there and I tell these guys, I said, college about 2,000 people. I say, you guys believe in God, right? They're all shaking their heads. In India, their yes is no. So they're all saying yes. And I say, well, let me tell you about a God who created this world and everything in it. He is a jealous God. Now, I wasn't allowed to use words like evolution and I wasn't allowed to share the gospel. But you know what? I spoke for 45 minutes on amazing animals. And in 45 minutes, the president of the college gets up afterwards, and I thought, boy, I pushed it too far. She gets up, she went to the microphone, and she shut the college down for the next three days so that the professors and students could come and listen to me at this planetarium that I was speaking at. Can you imagine that happening in America? And by the way, I was able to share the gospel at the planetarium. But you see, it was just like what Paul did. I said, I've seen all these false gods. I've seen all kinds of gods. As I was walking around there in India and going to different hospitals and things like that, I saw lots of gods. But I needed to proclaim to them the one 
that was a jealous God, the unknown God to them. And did it work? Oh, I wish there was a dozen of me to, to, to be able to go and, and answer questions about, how do you know this God is real? How, how do you know Jesus is your Savior? How do you know the Bible is real? It's just like what Paul said. You see, first we have to teach people about the bad news in Genesis before they're going to understand the good news in the New Testament. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentile because a Jew already believes in the Old Testament. They believe in creation. They believe in their basic ABCs of Christianity, the Sunday school stories. It's just a stumbling block to get them from M to Z. But a Gentile has no concept of who this creator-loving God is. And so we're trying to start in the middle of the alphabet at M when they don't have A to M taken care of. We have to start at the beginning, or else they're not going to get the gospel. And statistics are showing this. In the UK, it was evolution that crept into that country that caused people to doubt the authority of the Word of God, and that's why they began leaving the churches. And now that disease of evolution has crept into America. It has spread here, and now we have many of our youth not going to church anymore after they leave the house because they don't really believe that it's necessary. They don't believe that it's really true. Kids are leaving the church right and left because they don't have an understanding of the authority of God's Word. It's not true. And if it's not true in Genesis, why would it be true in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? You know, Billy Graham in the 1950s, when he went over to Australia, he would pack rooms like this where people would come and listen to the gospel. Just over the radio, even. And many people believed because the Word of God had worked faith in their hearts. But by Billy Graham's own admission, in his later years, he didn't get the same responses. Why? Because society changed. I believe that we became more like a Gentile-thinking society that didn't know the ABCs of Christianity. Years ago, you know, our grandparents, they believed in the Sunday school stories. They believed in the ABCs of Christianity. But not so today. I believe that our society is a Gentile-thinking society. Which means we need to go back to the foundation of creation to put the authority back into the gospel. You know, I want to show you Matthew 13. It's a parable of the sower. Now, you know the parable of the sower. The seed that's being sowed is the word of God. The ground that it's landing on is the heart of people. It says that as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where there wasn't much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, though. It says when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Now, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up, choked the plants. Still others on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Here's what I want to ask you. How do you know that the seed that we are sowing out there as Christians is falling on good soil? You don't. No, you do know. You see, the Bible tells us right here, what does it say? It produces fruit, a crop, a hundred, thirty, sixty times what is sown. You see, I'm going to many churches, and you know what I see? I see very little fruit coming out of the churches today. Very little fruit. I think people are going to church for the wrong reasons. You see, 
There's a lot of times this is telling me that we're throwing seed on ground that is thorny and the cares of this world, as Jesus says those thorns represent, choke it out before it can take root. Others are falling on the path and Satan steals the seed before it can take root. It's the seed that falls on good soil that produces fruit. I'm going to propose to you, we need to go prepare the ground. Now, by the way, Mark's version of this parable gives another added detail. These stony ground hearers of the word of God, these rocky ground hearers, it says that they hear the word at once and receive it with joy. We go through many trials and tribulations in our churches today to make sure that people are coming through our doors with smiles on their faces. We have to make sure they're happy, happy, happy. We want to, you know, make sure that the coffee is just right, that there's donuts, you know. I mean, if there's not donuts, they're not coming to church. Guys, what you win them with is what you're going to win them to. If you win them with music, when a new musician comes in that can't carry a tune in the basket... They're out of there. You win them with coffee and cookies when the church down the road gets Starbucks, they're out of here. What you win them with is what you're going to win them to. Unless we win people with the truth of the Word of God and the authority of that Word, they will not stay as leaders and people change. We need to win them with the word of God. And that is why these stony ground hearers of the word of God, it says they last only a short time because the troubles and the trials of life are going to come about. And you know what? They don't need church anymore. And there's a couple of reasons for this. They quickly fall away. There is no greater joy than I've had to to see 300-pound football players falling on their faces, weeping because of the sin in their lives. When we would go out on the street... It wasn't the people who were all happy, happy. Yeah, maybe I'll try your church that I was really excited about. It was those that were weeping because they knew they had sinned against a holy and righteous God. That's what I'm seeking when people are coming through my door. People who understand the holiness of this God that we serve. James 4 gives us the proper submission into Christianity, the proper conversion. It says this, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, what? Grieve, mourn, and wail? Don't we want them coming on, you know, coming into our churches all happy? No. It says grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Out on the street, I can't tell you how many times we would see people coming up and saying things like this. I tried Christianity. It didn't work. My response to them was always this. What were you looking for? Oh, you can tell me what they were looking for. They were looking for the false gospel that has been preached in church upon church upon church in this country today. It goes something like this. Oh, you've got problems? Come to my church. Oh, our our church is so wonderful. Uh, you know, let me ask you, how many of you guys don't have any problems out there? And you guys are Christians? What? You see, that's the message we've given. You've got problems, come to church. God takes your problems away. No, Christians have many problems. 
That is not the gospel. Ray Comfort talks about this a lot. Love is ministry, way of the master. You know, he said, if you had an opportunity to witness to people on the 101st floor and the Twin Towers, September 10th, would you go up and say, hey, God has a wonderful plan for your life, or, or everybody's got a God-shaped hole and only God can fit that hole? No. You'd tell them, you know what, you're going to die. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you don't know Jesus, and if your sins aren't covered by His blood, you will perish eternally in hell. Jesus loves you enough that He gave His life to die for you. Let me ask you this. Does the gospel change according to our circumstances? So that if things are going good, we can tell people, you know, God has a, 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 you know, a wonderful plan for your life. And if things aren't going good, then we preach the law. No, the gospel doesn't change according to our circumstance. It never has changed. But the churches today have been trying to put the gospel on sale. We put things on sale when it's not good enough to sell for itself, by itself. It's not right. So these people who humble themselves, you know, it says, humble yourself before the Lord and then He will lift you up. They have it backwards. They think, you know what, I'm going to come to church. If He lifts me up, then I'll humble myself. Doesn't work that way. You must repent first. There is a reason that we confess our sins before there is absolution of the gospel. Confession before absolution. Because it's what Scripture says the proper conversion is. Isaiah 30 says, They say to the seers, See no more visions. To the prophets, Give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. We don't want to hear how bad we are. I had one lady say, you know, I, I like our church because they don't tell us how bad we are. They just kind of lift us up and tell us how good we are. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah 30 is saying many people sought out. We need to know the soil that we're sowing seed on. A story is told by Ray Comfort. He, he talked about this kid who uh, he came home and his dad and mom had this vase that they had in this case. And they said, son, do not touch this vase. Actually, it's a vase. It was worth $25,000. Don't touch the vase. And the kid's thinking, fine, I don't want to touch the vase. And about a week goes by, and he goes to the grocery store with his mother, and he sees a vase in the store that looks identical to the one that they have at home. He looks at it, it has a $5 price tag on it. And he says, my parents lied to me. They said it was expensive. It's 5 bucks. They lied so I wouldn't touch it. And he was a little upset by that. Well, you know, a while later, his parents are gone away from home, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to touch the vase. So he takes it out of the case, he's looking at it, and all of a sudden he hears a car drive up in the driveway, and he <gasps> quick puts it back in the case. He hits it on the lip of the case, it shatters into a thousand pieces. Immediately he's scared to death. He knows, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, man. He thinks, I know, I'll meet Dad at the door, that'll help. And he goes to the door and he says, Dad, listen, before you come in, I've got a confession to make. I am really sorry, I'm really sorry. I touched the vase and I broke it, but I've got $5. I'm going to buy you another one, a new one. I saw him at the store. And the father looks at the son and he says, Son, you didn't break a cheap imitation vase. This is the real thing. It was worth $25,000. Those others are copies. You can't replace it. Immediately the son began to weep. His knees began to shake. He fell to the ground because he knew for the first time he could not pay for what he had broken. I'm going to propose to you that many Christians are like this little boy who we think that we're going to go before the Lord and we're going to say, Lord, Lord, 
I went to church 50 out of 52 weeks and two of those were snow days because I lived in Minnesota. And he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I know not who you are. We have $5 of self-righteousness that we think we can take before the Lord and say, I've been a good person. I went to church. I gave money to the poor. I read my Bible. None of those mean anything without faith. We have to take away that $5 of self-righteousness. When I go to schools, oftentimes I will take and uh, a piece of glass, and I have the Ten Commandments written on there. And we use these Ten Commandments in our witnessing all the time. And really, Ray Comfort got me started on this, but it's just a biblical means of evangelism, using the law of God. The Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. You'll never convert anybody without the law. It's the law that makes you thirst for the gospel. Anyway, we'll ask people like this. We'll we'll say, you know, Bob, can I ask you a question? Sure. Bob, have you ever told a lie before? Well, sure, yeah, yeah. So what's that make you? A liar. Sure, Bob, so you're a liar. Let me ask you this, Bob. Have, Have you ever stolen anything? Oh, no. Well, I can't even believe you because you just told me you were a liar. Okay, Bob, let me help you out here. Let's say that your mother said, don't take a cookie out of the cookie jar. Okay, no cookies, but you snuck a cookie out of the cookie jar. That's stealing, isn't it? If you walked off with a pen from some store without realizing it, that's stealing. The value of what you take doesn't make it stealing. What makes it stealing is it not being yours. So have you ever stolen anything? Well, yeah, sure. How about this, Bob? Have uh, you ever committed adultery? Well, uh, no, I'm happily married. Well, Bob, let me help you out on this, because Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if you even look lustfully upon a woman, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever even looked with lust upon a woman before? (laughs) Lots of times. So you're an adulterer as well. Have you murdered before, Bob? Murdered anybody? Oh, no, no. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if you've ever had hate in your heart, you've murdered your brother. You've never had hate in your heart before? Well, yeah. So, Bob, by your own admission, you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, murderous adulterer at heart, as am I. We have just looked at four of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, commit adultery, and murder. We could look at the other six of the commandments, but I bet you broke those as well. And it really doesn't matter because Jesus says you break one, you break them all. If God is going to judge you on the day of judgment according to these commandments, will you be found innocent or guilty? And so many times they try and squirm out of it here and they'll say things like, well, well, I don't believe in God. Well, then we give them what's called the atheist test. It goes something like this. Bob, do you know all the information there is to know in the entire world that could be gained? Do you have it all? Well, of course not. How about 75% of it? No. 50%? No. 25%? No. 10%? Sure. Which is hilarious, but we'll give it to them. Einstein said we know less than 1% of 1%. But anyway, we'll give it to them. So in the 10% you do know, that means there's 90% you don't know. Could there be in that 90% that you don't know of information out there that evidence that God does exist? Well, so you're not an atheist, Bob. You're an agnostic. You don't know if God exists. Yeah, yeah, I'm agnostic. And I'm happy with them being agnostic because I figure if I've taken them from an atheist to an agnostic in 15 seconds, (laughs) I figure God can take them the rest of the way. Because now they've got to lay there on their beds and they have to think, I don't believe in God. 
But if he does exist, I'm going to hell. But I don't believe in God. But he could exist. And if he does exist, I'm going to hell. You see, they have broken God's commandments. Some will try and say, heaven. Well, you just say, well, what would you be guilty of? Why would you go to heaven if you are a lying, thieving, murderous adulterer at heart? You would go to hell. And they always will admit, yes, I get, if, if God is real, I would go to hell. This is why we take that Ten Commandments and we write it on glass and we do, run that through with kids at school. And they'll say, yeah, you know, I broke this commandment. And I'll give them a hammer and I say, here, you told me you broke number four. Here you go. Break number four. They take that hammer and it's in a bag and they push and the whole thing shatters. And I say, whoa, whoa, I told you to break number four only. I need you to fix that now. And it has to be perfect. You see, the Bible says we break the least of these commandments. We break them all, just like what you've just done. You said you broke four, but in breaking four, you broke every single one of them. And if this isn't perfect, you're in big trouble. Likewise, guys, you might think you're doing really well. Oh, I don't lie. I don't steal. But do you keep the Sabbath? Do you remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Do you, uh, have you maybe committed adultery with lustful eyes? Whatever the case might be, the bottom line is this. You break one, you broke them all, and you deserve to go to hell, and you will go to hell unless there is somebody who steps in and takes the penalty for you to fix that. And that is Jesus. It's kind of like if you got caught burning a DVD. You know, burning a DVD, I think, what is it, five years in jail, $250,000 fine? burning a DVD illegally. Let's say you get caught red-handed. You go before the court. The judge is about to send you to prison because you don't have $250,000 to pay the fine. But just then somebody busts into the courtroom and says, whoa, 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 stop, stop. I don't want Bob to go to jail. I just went and sold my house and my car. This is everything I have. It's $250,000 even. What are you going to think of that guy that just busted into the courtroom? He's your new best friend, isn't he? Likewise, Jesus has busted into the heavenly courts and he has said, I don't want Brian to go to hell for his sins. I will pay the penalty. I will pay the fine. I will die on that cross. That is what Jesus has done. I got news for you guys. You don't have $5 of self-righteousness to fix what you've broken. Only God can, and that is why you must repent, and Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only way for life. But you see, we in the church, we often measure the penalty of a sin based on the, 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 the punishment that's still dished out for it. That's how serious the crime is, right? If you see that your pastor gets, you know, a $5 fine in the paper, you on Sunday are probably going to come to him and start razzing him and saying, Hey, pastor, saw your name in the paper. What'd you do, spit on the sidewalk? But if he has a $50 million fine, you probably don't even want to make eye contact with him on Sunday morning. The elders are going to be knocking on his door saying, Ah, Pastor, we need to talk. We measure the seriousness based on the penalty that's dished out for the crime. So, how serious is sin? What was the penalty for one sin, according to the Bible? Death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It is by grace that we have been saved, and this not of ourselves, so that any man should boast. 
Yeah, I would say God considers sin pretty sinful, wouldn't you, if one sin is enough for the death penalty? Yet we in the church think, oh, you're practicing homosexuality, that's fine, come on in. Hey, I'm all for the homosexual coming into my church. However, they had better hear from the pulpit that homosexuality, practicing homosexuality is a sin. I'm all for the people that are sleeping together before they're married coming into the church, but by all means, they better be hearing from the pastor and the congregation that that's sin and they can't tolerate it. You know, Jeremiah says this, break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. But I think that's what we're doing. I think we're sowing the gospel among thorny grounds, stony grounds, on the path. We're out there going, woohoo, Jesus loves you, Wee-hee! everybody's got a God-shaped hole, yeehaw! God has a wonderful plan for your life. Guys, I've actually gone out there on the streets and asked people, what do you think it means if I would say to you, God has a wonderful plan for your life? You know what they tell me? Things like this. Oh, beautiful wife, lots of money, awesome car, neat house. All these different ideas of blessing, material blessings. I'm not saying that God doesn't have a wonderful plan for your life. He does, but that's not why people should come to church. And it isn't always a material thing. We need to make sure that we're not out there giving that false gospel. Everybody's got a God-shaped hole. God has a wonderful plan. No, that wonderful plan is for you to be with Him. And it might mean trials and tribulations while you're here on this earth. We need to know what kind of ground we're sowing that seed on. And that is why the creation ministry is so important. Because we are out there preparing the ground in order for it to have good soil so that the gospel seed can take root. We had a Japanese intern come to my school when I was a principal in Iowa. And her name was Aya, Aya Fujiwara. And you know, we got her a Japanese Bible. She read the whole thing in just a few months, even less than that. I think it was just a few weeks. She read the whole thing. I didn't even believe she read it till I started asking her questions. And I asked her, what did you think? She said, Old Testament bad, New Testament good. See, there was two gods to her, the Old Testament God that was mean and cruel, the New Testament God of love. Well, that's not true. But that's the way she perceived it. You know, the kids, I warned those kids that this girl, it was a Christian school, I said, this girl is going to be a Buddhist probably, and uh, you know, this is a great opportunity for you to witness about Jesus. And I've never seen a group of junior high kids do such a wonderful job of witnessing about their faith and sharing uh, lovingly the gospel with this group woman. Three months goes by, nothing. One day after school, I was even talking with her about things and then even shared my faith and shared how much Jesus had done for me, how much he had forgiven me, all these things. And she gave me that look that I'm far too familiar with. It's that people, that look people give you when they think you're an idiot, but they're trying to be polite. That little smile and nod kind of thing. Like, how long is this guy going to talk? Maybe some of you are thinking that now. Well, bottom line, it hit me. Jesus Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jew, but foolishness to this Gentile. I don't need to give her the gospel. I need to back up, and I need to do what Paul did in Athens and in all these other places. And I began to attack the foundation of creation and evolution. Okay, three months after that, she went home, but there was a spark being fanned into a flame. About six months after that, I got a phone or a letter in the mail that said, I believe, send more information. 
But you see, I had to prepare the ground, remove all of the thorns and the thistles and the things that had grown up in order for that gospel seed to even make sense and have meaning to her. And that is the goal of the creation ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and going into chapter 4 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed. That means old and new. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting? Yeah. And training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. I love that. Jesus is the judge. I got this bouncer one time. I was witnessing outside this bar. The bouncer comes out. He's all puffed up. Whoa, what are you guys doing out here? Eh, we're just talking about Jesus. Oh, fine. Crazy people. You know, that kind of attitude. He starts going back in. I said, how he's going to judge the world someday. Whoa, 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 whoa. You see, we can talk about Jesus being a God of love, but we want to talk about what he's going to do, judge the world because of sin someday. Oh, you've crossed the line now. Anyway, it says of Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now, by the way, this is the only time you are ever to preach the word of God. It says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Great, it's open season. It's open season. He says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they're going to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Oh, I know homosexuals who who go to churches that accept them as homosexuals and accept homosexuality because they have gathered around them a great number of teachers to suit their own desires. It says they will turn their ears away from truth. We don't want truth in the churches anymore. We just want myths and feel-good philosophies. But you, you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. I have a good friend of mine. When you ask him what he does for a living, I love his answer. He says this, I'm a disciple of Christ Jesus disguised as a garbage collector. I love that. You might be, you know, a doctor... But you are first and foremost a disciple of Christ Jesus disguised as a doctor. A a disciple of Christ Jesus disguised as a school teacher or, or a garbage collector or whatever the case might be. But we're called to be first and foremost disciples of Christ Jesus. Maybe not all of you are called to be an evangelist, but you're all called to do the work of one. All of us. But the modern day faith questions have become things like this. Where did Cain get his wife? You know, how do you fit dinosaurs into the Bible? Well, in my Dinosaurs Ice Age pre-flood world presentation, I'll tell you where Cain got his wife. That's very simple to answer. But bottom line is, we don't fit dinosaurs into the Bible. We fit the Bible into dinosaurs. You see, our thinking in every area of our life begins with a biblical worldview, a biblical foundation. We don't get a question asked to us and think, huh, what have I heard? We go, huh, what does the Bible say? Our thinking in every area must begin with the Word of God. But what's happened is we have a humanistic philosophy with God added to it because about 150 years ago, what ended up happening is that the church was being challenged by the scientists saying that the earth was older than what the Bible said it was. And so the theologians were going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they said, well, it really doesn't matter what we're going to do because you see, the Bible is, is just a means of salvation you know, it's not meant to be a science book. 
And, and the Bible is the authority on morals and faith and life practices, right? You guys believe that, wouldn't you? Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe the Bible is an authority on geology, biology, chemistry, those kinds of things? Most people say, yes, up here, but down here in their hearts, they're still believing that aliens could exist and that dinosaurs didn't live with people and the earth is millions of years old, which tells me you're not thinking the Bible is an authority because the Bible does not allow for that. Yes, the Bible is the authority on morals and salvation as well as geology, biology, chemistry, astronomy, you name it. Clarence Darrow in the famous monkey trial even asked this question, where did Cain get his wife? Uh, Williams Jennings Bryan couldn't answer the question, so he challenged the historical accuracy of the Scriptures. And we are dealing with that to this very day. In your Sunday schools, I'm sure you're probably teaching about Jesus, maybe Noah's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. But it's probably not this kind of Noah's Ark that you're teaching, are you? You're not showing it what it really looked like. You're showing some bathtub boat with 15 animals poking their heads out, going, yeah, having a great time. You don't show that it really, you know, was big enough to hold 522 railroad cars, each holding 240 sheep, so that it could hold over 125,000 sheep. You don't show dinosaurs going on that ark. We today are continuing to do what the theologians did years ago. Oh, we don't care what the scientists are saying. We just want to focus on moral issues, salvation. What we're doing is we're separating God's Word from real-life issues. And as I said at the beginning, kids have questions about real-life issues. And if we don't give them those questions about real-life issues, they will not believe the Bible. It's that simple. Let me ask you this. Are we teaching biology, geology, as well as theology and astronomy in your Sunday school curriculums? Probably not. And that's why I say it's not that the Sunday school is bad. It's what we aren't teaching in Sunday school that's bad. We need to be giving these people answers. Bruce Willis used to say this. He said, organized religion used to hang the whole thing on one hook. If you don't do these things, if you don't act morally, you're going to burn in hell. Unfortunately, with what we know about science, anyone who thinks at all probably doesn't believe in fire and brimstone anymore. So organized religion has lost that voice to hold up their moral hand. This famous actor, Bruce Willis, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying this. The same thing that I hear out on the street night after night after night when we would evangelize, we'd hear things like this. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God at all. Science has proven the Bible wrong. Evolution has proven it wrong. Go home. Yeah. You see, guys, other people would say, what gives you the right to tell me it's wrong to, to do drugs? I say, hey, the Bible says right. Oh, oh, your Bible, that's been proven wrong by science. Go home. You see, he's saying science has proven the Bible wrong. Therefore, not only is it not a foundation for Jesus Christ, but for moral values, any of those things have no foundation in the Bible anymore. You know, this used to be my book here, my Bible, when I was a kid. As far as I was concerned, there was nothing in it. You know, there was just nothing in the Bible for me. As far as I was concerned, it could sit on the shelf and collect dust. Matter of fact, it's even been said, if all the Christians in the world at one time would pick up their Bibles and open them up, we'd all die of a dust storm. But, when I went to church in Sunday school, 
I learned some pretty cool stories. I learned about Daniel and the lion's den. That was a cool story. I learned about, uh, you know, uh, Noah's Ark. I liked that. Now all of a sudden, God's Word became a book that had cool stories in it. I liked those. But you know what? It wasn't just a matter of cool stories, because I could get those in Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, Little Red Riding Hood, that was a great fairy tale story. I liked, you know, Disney cartoons too. And frankly, the pictures that I saw in my fairy tale books looked just like the pictures that I saw in my Bible story books. It wasn't until I got older that I began to realize that God's Word isn't just a book of stories, but these are true historical events. And I'm ashamed to say that it was my my first year out of college that I finally, because of an Institute for Creation Research seminar, went and began to learn that, you know what? These things are consistent. Science is consistent with the Word of God without chopping up the Word of God. And my faith grew and blossomed like I can't even explain to you. It's like God was looking down and saying, that's what I wanted, Brian, faith. And then all of a sudden, God's Word became a book that was filled with color. And it had meaning and purpose. And I hope and pray that that's what's happening to you, is that God's Word is becoming a book that is filled with color, has meaning and purpose. But it takes faith to see the color. How can we impose morality on a society that won't even accept the foundation of our morality, the Word of God. You can't. Carl Sagan said this, All the mistakes, the mutations, the death, the suffering, the disease, where is a God of love? Where is this powerful God? I don't see a powerful God. Do you hear what he's saying? The same thing I heard out on the street night after night. I don't believe in God. Where was he when my stepdad was beating me? Blow after blow, he called. I called out to him and he never answered. Or I don't believe in God. Where was he when my dad died of cancer? We have a lot of people out there who do not understand that we live in a fallen world who are angry at God. Angry at God because of the situations that go on in their lives. Angry because of things like 9-11. They do not understand Genesis. Because you know what? Our society has removed Genesis from the Bible. And it is in Genesis that we see that the Scriptures tell us that it is by sin, man's sin, that death came into this world. It also tells us that in Romans 5, in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15. It is by man's sin that death came into the world, and because all men sin, death has passed upon all men. I can tell you why your dad died of cancer. I can tell you why your stepdad was beating you. It wasn't God's plan. It is called sin in this world, and this is why Christ came to redeem this world. You see, they can't answer why there's death, disease, and suffering. And... If there is not a literal Adam and Eve who fell into literal sin, who caused literal death and disease and suffering, I wouldn't be able to answer that question either. If Genesis is removed from our theology, then you have no explanation of why these things happen. I guess who would be to blame? God would then, wouldn't he? Yeah. 
You know, the Bible says in Luke 3 that now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot. And it goes all the way down to say the son of Seth, the son of a metaphor, right? No, the son of Adam. The very fact that you're sitting here tonight tells me that Adam was a real person. Because you had to have a literal ancestor who had a literal ancestor who had a literal ancestor. And yet so many people don't even believe there was a literal Adam and Eve just a few thousand years ago. This is the goal of the creation ministry. You see, the churches are out there saying, come to the cross, come to Jesus and be saved. And the world is out there throwing millions of years at the cross. And the church is saying, it didn't hit the cross. But what they don't realize is underneath the cross is a foundation called Genesis. And it did hit that foundation. If the site is set on the cross, the church is, oh, no, 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 no. But if it's set on the foundation of the cross, well, oh, it's just a site issue. And then more millions of years and long ages and things like that are thrown at the, the cross. They hit the cross. It begins to tilt. The church is saying, it didn't hit the cross. But Satan is saying, direct hit. You even see other churches not just the world, but churches throwing in millions of years and saying, we can fit it into the Bible. Those things come in. They hit the foundation of the cross. And the churches are saying, it's okay, it's just a side issue as long as they believe Jesus is their Savior. Unbelief creeps into the church. Prayers outlawed in schools. And we say, oh, just trust in Jesus. The Bible is outlawed in schools. And the church says, oh, we've got to get the Bible back into schools. Guys, I don't care if you get the Bible back into schools. Nobody's going to read it, and those that do won't believe it. We have to get the authority back in the Bible before we can get the Bible back into schools. And then the Ten Commandments are outlawed in the schools, and the church says, oh, Jesus is going to return soon. Things are getting bad. Creation is being outlawed. We can't even talk about that anymore. And now the church is saying, oh, let's just concentrate on worship. Let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya. Let's not talk about doctrinal truth. Let's just agree with worship and say that we love Jesus and move on. That is the goal of the CIA ministry. We are out there as a watchtower, and we are trying to repair that foundation so when these lies come in, we can say, warning, warning, not true, attack those things. And they're going to keep them coming, and we're going to continue to say, warning, that does not line up with the inspired Word of God, so that we can say to people, come to the cross, come to Jesus, and be saved, and that message is going to have meaning. It'll have power, and it'll have results. You know, some people, you might say, I don't believe in creation, and, and you, so you're saying I'm going to hell because I don't believe in creation? No. If you believe the earth is millions of years old and evolution is true, you know, I think you're wrong, but I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about all the people you talk to that won't take the message of Christ seriously. I mean, you guys believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Why? Well, the Bible says, oh, no, 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 don't quote that book. You, you can't take, you know, that book seriously. There, if I can't take it seriously a few pages earlier. Yeah, I, think about this, guys. Do you have to have scientific proof for everything? Prove to me that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Prove it scientifically. Even if you lived back in her day, you'd have to take her word for it. 
I mean, who of your, you fathers out there would believe your daughter? Huh, honest, it was the Holy Spirit, Dad. Yeah, the only reason we believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary is because the Bible says it, and we know the Bible is true. It is inspired, it is the Word of God. And it's given us no reason to doubt. But yet we have people doubting Genesis. Why? Because they believed the world, the lie of the world, based on false sciences. Guys, I do debates at universities, and, and not because I'm smart, but because I stand on truth, I can win every debate. We have some debates, DVDs. You can watch them, see if I win. And it's not because I'm smart. I think there are three reasons that we're not out there evangelizing. I think we have hearing problems, vision problems, and emotional problems. First of all, hearing problems. We don't hear that God said go. And second, we are the God of our own kingdom here. We decide what we should do in my life and, and what I'm going to do in my business and so on. You know, when Moses was on the mountain and God was telling him to go free Israel from Egypt... Moses says, well, who shall I say sent me? And God says to him, tell them I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. I used to look at that and think, what? I am? What's that mean? I think it was Frank Peretti that put this in perspective for me. Why didn't he say, tell them I am whoever you want me to be? I am who I am. No, God is who He is, isn't He? He is the same yesterday, today, and always. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6 God is who He is regardless of your opinion. It doesn't matter what you think He is. What matters is what the Bible says He is. What you believe doesn't make truth. You can believe gravity doesn't exist. Go jump off of a building. Believe it all you want. The truth of the gravity is going to kill you. And you can believe that Jesus is a God of love that wouldn't send people to hell, but I got news for you. He's going to send people to hell because the truth of the Bible says it. We'll talk more about that later. Second thing is we have vision problems. Our focus is set on the wrong things, frankly, us. A story is told by, uh, about a, a father who takes his kid fishing, and he says to his kid, he says, son, you may fish down over here, but do not fish down this embankment. There are alligators down there. It's dangerous. And the kid's thinking, fine, I'm happy. I am fishing with dad. Five hours goes by, not a nibble. Even dad got bored. He fell asleep on a lawn chair over here. Well, the kid can see fish swimming over here, and he thinks, man, one cast isn't going to hurt. So he walks over there quietly. He casts his line out. Immediately, he gets his huge fish, and he's starting to reel it in. He's all excited. And just before he gets it to shore, an alligator jumps up, scares the kid down the embankment. The screams wake up the father who knows what's going on immediately. He jumps up. He jumps down in there to save his boy. He gets his son up out on the, on the shore again. And the kid looks down and he sees blood everywhere. He looks and he sees that his dad is missing most of his foot. And the kid says, oh, dad, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I should have listened to you. Oh, are you going to be okay? And his dad said, everything's fine. I just called 911. They're going to be here soon. I'll survive. And the kid says, oh, Dad, I'm so glad. Uh, thank you so much for saving me. Thank you so, so much. Hey, do you suppose while we wait for that ambulance, that while you're awake, I could take your fishing pole and, and I could try and catch that fish one more time before we go, though? You'd want to say, kid, right? What are you thinking? 
Well, I think that's exactly what we do. Jesus came down into this muck and this mire of this world to save us from the alligators of this world as well. And we have the goal to say, thanks Jesus for saving me, but now I want to go chase after the world. Our eyes are fixed on the wrong thing. The world. We're after the big fish that the world has to offer rather than the Father. You know what the Bible says though? Here in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and He sat down at the right hand of God. I don't know if you saw the movie The Passion. You know, in that scene where Jesus is being flogged and whipped over and over and over, there was one thing that kept going through my mind. Why? 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 Enough already! Why? You know what the answer that kept coming back to me was this. You. You. It's what Hebrew says here. For the joy set before Him. Jesus loved you enough that He endured that cross, scorning its shame. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You are why. I am why. But it says here, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We keep fixing our eyes on the fish, not the Father. And sometimes we go, fish, Father, fish, Father. But pretty soon it's kind of like, fish, 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 Father, fish, 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 Father, fish, 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 fish. Our eyes are uh, entertainment. We have gone entertainment crazy. iPods, iPads, i-everything. I, 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 I. I frankly think that's an appropriate symbol with the bite taken out of the apple. I use Apple myself. I'm not saying they in themselves are evil. What I'm saying is this, is that we have become so crazy with entertainment. Our eyes fixed on the world rather than Jesus. You know, I used to think Peter and these guys, they were psychotic. You ever read Acts chapter 12? They get thrown in prison and they're flogged. And if you saw the passion, you know what flogging was. This wasn't just your typical beating. And he's thrown back in prison. Now, if that was me, and I had just been flogged, I'd have been sitting there going, Oh, God, this Christianity is so hard. But what is God doing? Or or what is Peter doing? He says, Come on, guys, let's worship. Let's praise God. What kind of psychotic idiot would do that? That would be beat up and and then be able to, to say, Come on, guys, let's praise God. I'll tell you, one who has their eyes fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of his faith. You know, I was a small kid. You might have a hard time believing that from my stature now. (laughs) No, I was a tiny kid. And for whatever reason to this day, I still do not know, but my dad gave me a Winchester 375 Magnum gun to shoot deer with. Now, for those of you who don't know guns, that's like an elephant gun. It would bring down an elephant. Kicked like a mule. And every year, he would make me try and sight in this little this gun by putting a milk jug on a fence post and I was supposed to hit the the milk jug. All I could think about was keep it tight on my shoulder, keep it tight on my shoulder because you see, if it's not tight on your shoulder, it'll slap you and leave a bruise like that. That's all I could think. And so I would get there and I'd be squeezing it as hard as I could on my shoulder and then boom! 
and I'd realize I was alive, then I'd see if I hit anything. I could never hit it because my focus was here, not there. But then we would go hunting, and I'd go, cha-cha-boom, 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 and the deer would either run off or blow up. Now, I never once would feel a thing. Why? Because my focus wasn't here, it was out there. And I believe that if we fix our eyes on Jesus, rather than the fish of this world, the trials and the tribulations that we have in this earth aren't going to seem like much. They're not going to be that big of a trial, not not be that big of a deal. I'm not saying that there won't be hardships. What I'm saying is this, that your eyes being fixed on Him will allow you to deal with your problems a lot better. We can even see this in this world, the the difference of Christian suffering versus non-Christian suffering. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me ask you this. What if heaven was really hot? I mean, it was like, you know, 98 degrees at night. It, It was humid. Food was rationed. Water was rationed. Entertainment really wasn't any. You had to work six days a week, 12 hours a day. and But you got to work side by side with Jesus. Now, when you came home, though, you came home to an overcrowded apartment that you shared with eight other people, but one of those people was Jesus. On the flip side, hell, oh, man, awesome. It had the best food, the best entertainment. Uh, you could work if you wanted, didn't have to. The best climate. Let me ask you this. If you died, where would you want to go, heaven or hell, if that's what heaven and hell were? You know, when that question was posed to me, I hated my answer. I despised it so much, I couldn't even be honest with myself enough to say it out loud. It was like, hell. Yeah, I'd like to go to hell. Yeah. Fine, hell. If that's what hell was compared to heaven, I'd have rather gone to hell than heaven. I knew it was the wrong answer, but deep down, I knew that was the honest answer. I'd have rather gone to hell if that's what heaven was. And it forced me to realize something about myself that I did not like, and that was this. I was more in love with heaven than Jesus. I was more in love with the place than the person. Guys, I got news for you. When the Bible says we're inheriting eternal life, it says Jesus is eternal life. You're inheriting Jesus. Jesus is the prize, not the gold streets. Kind of reminds me of the old Reader's Digest joke where this guy gets to heaven, he brings a suitcase, and St. Peter meets him at the gate, and he says, "Uh, you can't bring that in. And he says, no, it's all right, God and I made a deal. God said I could bring one suitcase of stuff with me. Peter says, all right, but i got to go check this out. So he goes back, he comes back, and says, yep, you're right. But God says, I'm supposed to see what you have brought in. So this guy throws up this suitcase on the table. He opens it up. St. Peter's looking at it, and he's all confused. And he sees all these bars of gold, and he says, Pavement? Why do you bring pavement? You see, what we consider so precious on this earth is nothing but pavement in heaven. And I began to pray, God, I want to fall in love with you. If all you do for me on this earth is die so that I might live on earth or in heaven with you eternally, and I have to go through earth miserable, but I get to live with you eternally, let that be enough. And you know what? God began answering that prayer, and He's still answering it to this day as I fall more and more and more in love with Jesus. 
the author and perfecter of my faith. If your answer was held deep inside, I guarantee this, you start praying, you recognize it, you repent of that, God will answer your prayer. And He will cause you to fall more in love with Him. The person, not the place. John 4 says this, Do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. I want you to know something, guys. We have to get it out of our heads that we, as we go out and evangelize that we can expect to see somebody come to church on Sunday. Sometimes it's a matter of planting seeds. Sometimes we might be able to see the benefits of what others have reaped. All I know is that it's not my job to save people. It's my job to tell people how to be saved. But today we have this idea that Christianity is like a flu shot. We say, oh yeah, I did that. I'm saved. I got inoculated. It's not that. Christianity is much more than that. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm going to go tell people how to find that relationship. But I can't save anybody. Third and final thing is we have emotional problems. We're scared to evangelize. We're afraid to step on toes. We don't want to upset people. Is that what we see as a biblical model? No. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 45. It says, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. In Acts 23, the dispute became so violent that Paul was about to be torn to pieces. In Acts 19, it says that... Uh, some of them became obstinate. In Acts chapter 18, the Jews opposed Paul, became abusive. In Acts chapter 22, they said, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. You know, I'll bet most of you haven't experienced that kind of persecution. Probably because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. You know something? It isn't what we say, or it isn't how we say it that's a problem, guys. It's what we say that's the problem. And you've got to get it out of your heads that you're not going to offend people because i got news for you. Jesus Christ is offensive. I could take a box, go stand in the Walmart parking lot and say, Governor so-and-so needs to be re-elected and nobody's going to think twice about it. They may agree, they may disagree, but they don't care. But if I stand in the same time of day, same spot, same box, same tone of voice and say, Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, now all of a sudden I'm a crazy nut. It isn't how I said things that made me crazy. It's what I said. And Jesus is offensive. You have to get it out of your head that you can't step on people's toes because I got news for you. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to do it whether you want, it or want to do it or not, so you might as well go for it. That's not our purpose. That's not our goal. Our goal is to share the gospel in love, but that will be offensive. I think everybody ought to have this put on their refrigerator and their TV. Galatians 1.10 says this, Do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm here to be honest with you about what the Scriptures say. And the Scriptures say that unless you repent, you will perish. 
And Jesus is the only way. I was speaking at uh, Iowa or Idaho State one time, and this, this uh, girl was there and tra- thought she could trap me because she knew that there were some Hindus or Buddhists there. And she said, so what you're telling me is who, uh, Jesus is the only way, so Hindus are going to hell? I said, yeah. Don't blame me, the messenger. Okay, blame God. He's the one that said it. It's in his Bible. And, and not just that, guys. I don't even think blame God. You see, really, there's a broad way and a narrow way. Broad is the way to destruction. Narrow is the way to eternal life. Let me ask you this. Is the narrow way narrow enough for everybody in the world to go on it? Yeah. It's just too narrow for you if you don't believe. You see, so don't even blame me, the messenger. Don't blame God, the author. Blame you, the receiver. Because you refused to accept the free gift. And will God send people to hell? You bet He will. My God's a God of love. He wouldn't send people to hell. You try that in the civil courts. All right? you, you, you try and get away with that. You know, some, imagine that you're, you're a loved one of yours gets brutally raped and murdered. They catch the rapist and the murderer. You go before the court because you want to see this rapist and this murderer get sent to life in prison, if not the electric chair, right? And the judge looks at this rapist and he says, You know what? I'm a good guy. I'm a loving guy because of that. You're free to go. I forgive you. What kind of judge would that be? An unjust, unloving God. And yet that's what we make God out to be when we say God wouldn't send people to hell. We make Him unjust and unloving. Guys, there are some things God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot be unjust. He cannot be unloving. And He cannot not send people to hell. Unless they are covered by the blood of Jesus, somebody has to pay the fine. The Bible says, do not fear. Isaiah 51, hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have my law in your hearts. Do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. See, we're not to fear men, we're to fear God. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. Do not be afraid, it says in Isaiah 54. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. Out on the street, I've been called every name in the book. But you know something? None of them have been a humiliation for me. I've only been blessed by seeing people that God has brought to me that that I see fruit coming from. Years afterwards, we had some lady come up to one of the kids that was with me, and they recognized him, you know, five hours away from us. And... This lady came up and said, hey, you guys were the ones outside that bar, named the bar. And, and they said, yeah. And she said, you guys changed my life. So what do you mean? Well, I was about to go into this bar. I heard you guys preaching. And, and she said, I was convicted and I never went in. I went home. I woke up my mom and dad. And, and, and ever since then, I've been walking the straight and narrow. I, I confessed my sins. I did all those things. It's like, well, I, we didn't even talk to the woman. But the word of God was powerful. It was doing its work. I could tell you story upon story. One man kind of got trapped in a box. He'd walk by and he, he just kind of like, kind of got stuck. You know, the spirit would just kind of make him get stuck there. The guy I was with said, uh, can I help you? And he says, um, if, I, uh, if I drink tonight, will, will, will I go to hell? We weren't even talking about drinking, but the spirit of God was working. The word was convicting this person. That's how the Spirit works. Philippians says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, and not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence... Continue to work out your salvation with fear 
and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. You see, we are to fear God, not man, but I think it's the opposite. I think most people fear men more than we fear God. Next time you're afraid to evangelize, maybe that's what you need to do, is you need to picture the... the flames of hell licking at the feet of these people. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 2 through 5 says this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You say you're scared to evangelize? Great, you're in good company, because what did Paul say? I came to you in much weakness and fear, trembling even. Guys, there have been times that my knees have been shaking. I have been so scared. But you get going and the Spirit comes over you and it goes away. If you're waiting not to be fearful to evangelize, it'll never happen. Even Paul said he came with much weakness, fear, and trembling. Oh, you didn't win a speech debate? Great, you're in good company. What did Paul say? Paul said it was a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. It doesn't require your great speeches. Do you know the Word of God? Can you just give some word to them? Let the Word of God work so that the Spirit can work? And you'll be in good company. We are to be men of courage, the Bible says. Courage isn't not being afraid, so you do it. Courage is being afraid and doing it anyway. It says here in Philippians 1.20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body. 1 Corinthians 16, we are called to be men of courage, to be strong and to do everything in love. Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Guys, I can't tell you how many times of just the courage of being out on the street evangelizing at times. People have come up and say, I just want to shake your hand and thank you for being here. This takes guts. Just the very act of being there was a witness. We've had people that would come up to us and say, you know what, my father committed suicide this week and I knew you would tell me the truth. They would come looking for us because they knew we would be honest with them. They knew we weren't going to be politically correct. When in your community, they want to catch the criminals, do the police put up advertisements around town, free ice cream and cake, Friday night, 7 o'clock, come all criminals? No. No, they go out and they police, they patrol. But somehow the church has gotten into this idea that we are to advertise that there's going to be some creation speaker at the church. Come one all, come one, come all, uh, you know, ungodly people. I'm not saying you can't do that, but what I'm saying is this. Don't expect the results if that's the kind of evangelism you're going to do at a church. Because the bottom line is hardly any of the ungodly are going to step in here because they don't want to come into your church any more than a criminal wants to go to the police station. We have to go out on the street corners. We need to be out there patrolling. We need to be out there witnessing as we're going through the checkout line at Menards or Walmart or wherever you go and shop. 
We need to be out there patrolling. We used to do this camp called homework, and we would go out and we would evangelize. You know, it was very interesting to me, because one place we went, kind of down and out, slummy area, and it was very fascinating to me because we would come and kids would be coming from all over that we would, I mean, we'd, we'd have, you know, 30, 40 kids, 99.9% of them unchurched, coming, and we would share the gospel with them and do all kinds of things. And yet, at the same time we were doing that, there was a church in town that was having their VBS, and they were busing kids to their church. The first day, four kids went, then two, and then between one and two the rest of the days, while we had 30 and 40 kids every day coming. They were bribing them with coffee and cookies. Guys, if we go out and patrol, we will be much more effective with our evangelism than we will if we expect them to come to us. And that's the biblical model. In Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, we see that Jesus is ascending into heaven, and the disciples are just gazing up as he's going, and all of a sudden two angels appear. And... They say, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they're gazing up, and he he basically says this, Man, why are you gazing into heaven? Look, He's going to give you the Holy Spirit, and you are to be His witnesses, and you're to go to Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth. I think there are a lot of people today gazing up and, oh, yes, Jesus, we love you. We're gazing up. And, and I think he's saying, wait, what, what are you doing gazing up? I, I told you to go do something. Oh, we will. We've got our checkbooks right here. Oh, we love you. story is told of a ship captain. Ship captain receives this SOS from this uh, boat that ran into some icebergs. And so they go to rescue this boat. And all the crew is a little scared because they have to go through all these ice glacier-filled waters. And it's dark, and they can't see anything. And the captain says, just set your sail. We're going to go rescue them. And all the crew is going, man, I don't know if this is a good idea. And they're all scared and fearful. But they get there. But before they are able to rescue them, all the, the people on the, the, the boat, the sailors, are saying, oh, captain, you are so wise and so wonderful and so loving. We can't believe that you were so courageous to go through these glaciers and to come here. We were scared, but you said, you, you said just do it. And, and wow, we love you. And the captain says, throw in the, throw in the lifeboats. Get them. Oh, we will, Captain, but we just want to tell you how proud we are of you that you did this. Throw in the lifeboats. Oh, we will, Captain, but you're just so wonderful. I think that's what we're doing. Jesus, we love you so much. Feed my sheep. Oh, we will, but Jesus, you are so wonderful. Praise God. Feed my sheep. Are we so busy standing, gazing, worshiping that we're forgetting to obey? You know, think about this. What would you think of me if you saw that, you know, in my hotel that, I uh, uh, got up this morning, and, and as I'm leaving, I was in my suit, because I had to speak at a school and whatnot, and, and there's this kid drowning in a pool. And it looked like he was about three or four years old. I looked around, didn't see any parents around, but I figured, hey, it's not my kid, so I let him drown. You, you guys be okay with that? Of course not. But yet, you know what? I've done that. Maybe not just like that, but... I want you to understand something, guys. When you leave here tonight, you're going to leave these doors and you're going to run into people who are drowning in their sins, sinking to the depths of hell. And you won't say a word to them because you don't want to get wet. You don't want to get uncomfortable. And besides, it's not your kid. And you know, I've done that too. 
And this forced me to realize something. It forced me to realize, again, God, I want to see what you see in these people. I don't want to see some pierced up punk. I want to see what you see. If I have to see the flames of hell licking at their feet, then reveal that to me so that I will go and share the good news with them. And you know what? God answered my prayer. Oh, I didn't see fires licking at people's feet. But I saw Jesus. Yeah, he appeared to me. I know you might think I'm crazy, but I did. And you know what? He was in Walmart. I walked out of Walmart. There he was sitting on the bench. Yeah, Jesus likes Walmart too. Sitting right there on the bench. Funny thing is, he was missing a few teeth and he hadn't shaved. He didn't smell so good either. But it was Jesus. You may say, how dare you say Jesus looks like that? Well, I know it was Jesus. I didn't have a lot of time to talk to him, so I just pretty much said hello and moved on. But it was Jesus. When I got home and I was reading, it said this. That Jesus said, many are going to go before him and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, When were you hungry and we didn't feed you? When were you thirsty and we didn't give you something to drink? When were you in prison and we didn't visit you? And he's going to say, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Guys, Jesus is everywhere. And you're going to see him when you leave tonight. Don't let them drown. You know, a few years back, I made a commitment that every time I get on an airplane, I am going to witness to the person next to me. And it's been a few years now, but I got onto a plane. I was doing a red, red-eye flight, and I had spoke all day, and I had to speak this next day, and, and I, had to, I needed sleep. And I thought, God, you understand I need sleep. I mean, I'm going to go out there and preach the Word, right? And so I sit down. This other lady comes, sits next to me, and immediately she's just going to close her eyes. I'm thinking, yes. I get to sleep. And I kept thinking, ah, she could be drowning in her sins, going to hell, but I need sleep. She could go to hell, but I'm tired, God. I couldn't sleep. So I began to be a little bouncy and rough and, you know, moving around a little bit. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I hope I never have to sit next to him on an airplane. Well, listen, guys, here's the thing. You know what? If I'd have woke her up and I saw that she wasn't interested... I'd have buzzed off. We're like bees buzzing around. We're looking for nectar. If there's no nectar, buzz off. But we have to be open and looking for these opportunities. Well, I ended up kind of, you know, she opened her eyes and I said, Hi, how are you? And just started a conversation with her. And you know what? There was nectar. And I began to witness to her, and you know, it ended up, I took my computer out, I gave her a whole presentation with my computer, and she was into it. She was asking all kinds of questions, and I almost slept through it. I got back to my hotel, and I found out why I couldn't sleep. I called my wife, and I found out that she was praying. The very time I was trying to get to sleep, she was praying. And you know what her prayer was? Her prayer was this, Lord, give Brian the strength to witness on the airplane. I know he's tired. Guys, prayer is so important. You need to be lifting up your leaders. You need to be praying for your pastors. You need to be praying for your spouses. We need to be praying for one another because I'm telling you, prayer works. It is powerful. When the Titanic was sinking, do you think that the people in the lifeboats were joyful, happy? I think they were joyful that they were in the lifeboats, but I don't think they were happy. They weren't having a good day. 
But you know something? There were a lot of people drowning in those waters, dying. And there were people in the boats joyful. You know what, guys? We are like those people in the lifeboats. The world is sinking. We're in the lifeboats because we know Jesus. But you know what? So many of them, they're not happy. They're not even joyful. We're just so busy wiping the noses of everybody else in the lifeboat that's whining and complaining that we don't have time to go out and evangelize. Do you know that there are just as many people in the church that are on antidepressant drugs as there are outside of the church? What's wrong with that picture? I'm not saying you can't be on antidepressant drugs. What I'm saying is this. There's something wrong. Not the only reason. There are some spiritual reasons. I'm not going to get into that tonight, why people can be depressed. But I think that a majority of the people that are depressed are because they're so focused on themselves and they're disobedient. i got news for you guys. Do not expect the joy of your Christianity, the joy of your salvation. If you're going to watch the same filth on TV that the rest of the world watches. Don't expect the joy of your salvation if you're going to listen to the same ungodly music that the world listens to. Don't expect the joy of your salvation if you're going to hang out with the same ungodly people that the world hangs out with. When the Bible says, with such a man, do not even associate. Do not even eat. You know, John, where he talks about the vine and the branches, and he says this. He says, If you obey my commands... I will remain in you, and you will remain in me. I have told you this, that your joy may be complete. You see, guys, the commandments aren't for you to get to heaven. The commandments are for your protection. The commandments are for your pleasure, your joy, your freedom. Do not expect the joy of Christianity if you're going to live in disobedience to God's commands. Let me ask you this. If I give you $500 tonight for every person that you go and evangelize to, how many people will you witness to? I'll bet they don't even have to be on the same side of the street. You'll be, hey, you, don't run from me! Yeah. Why is it that we are more zealous for money than we are for God? I'll bet you would have your house paid off. I'll bet your car is paid off. Why is it? that we're more zealous for money than we are for God. Is it a fish father thing? I'm going to close with this, guys. One of the generals, is General MacArthur, I've heard, said this. Men, the enemy is in front of us. The enemy is behind us. The enemy is to the right of us. The enemy is to the left of us. They can't get away this time. When you leave tonight, the enemy is all around. Don't let them get away. God has given us a job. And what a joy-filled job it is. You take your eyes off of yourself, start serving others and telling them about the gospel, I'll bet you're going to find some joy in your life. So thank you for coming, and may God's blessings be upon you as you go and share the good news of Jesus. Amen.